Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I'm a lead pastor. Appreciate you guys coming on out. So today we are kicking off our fall series. Can't believe it's fall. Our fall series that we are calling Follow Me. Now, this phrase, follow me, is almost exactly what Jesus would often say to people when he would invite them to become his disciples. He would step into their life, he would look into their heart, and he would say to them, come, follow me. In essence, do what I do, or do as I do. But what does that mean? Like, what what does this entail to do as Jesus did? Because we tend to think that when you're a follower of Jesus, that just means believing in Jesus. That to be a Christian, that just means believing in what Jesus says. But what would it look like for us to do what he does? to imitate him, to to actually follow his lead. Because as you read the Gospels, one of the things you see is that Jesus does teach us to do many things. He teaches us how to pray, teaches us how to worship, and he also teaches us how to engage with people around us. Now, one of the things that becomes very clear as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that Jesus loved people, all right? And I don't just mean he, he had love for them. He really thoroughly enjoyed being around their company. And what is so fascinating is that people who were nothing like Jesus, and you know what Jesus is like, God, people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And they liked them back. All right, now society may have called them sinners or outcasts or marginalized or whatever the case may be. Jesus called them friends, as the bumper said. And so what I want us to do is I want us to try to figure out Jesus' secret sauce. How did he manage that? Why did unbelievers and sinners and outcasts feel so comfortable in his presence? And yet, they don't seem to feel very comfortable around Christians. Could it be that we're not doing what he did? That we're not actually following him? My hypothesis for this series is that if we can begin to understand and imitate and follow Jesus' lead when it comes to interacting with the people in our lives and those around us, I believe it can revolutionize the way that we reach this world for Christ. So let's talk about why this particular series is so vitally important for those of you who are Christians. When Jesus was about to die, let's call it the last night before his life, he prayed to God about his followers. And he says to God, God, I'm getting ready to come back to you. Meaning like he knew Tomorrow was the day. I'm getting ready to come back to you. I'm leaving my disciples and my followers behind. And he says to God the Father, here's the prayer, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. He continues, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all, that's us in the room who are his followers, all who will ever believe in me through their message. What a powerful prayer. What an amazing insight into into the heart of Jesus. Now, this prayer is often famously kind of paraphrased by saying that we as Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. Maybe you've heard that kind of phrase before if you've been around church any length of time. You're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. All right. According to Jesus' prayer, he is sending his followers out to go live in the world. We are to live in society. We are to work in society. We are to socialize with the people of this world like we do on DAC nights. However, as Christians, you're to be different. 
And while you are called, and I would say commanded to go live out in the world, you're also called to be not of the world, meaning of the world system, okay? Our system of morality is found in Scripture. Our system of morality is based and founded in Jesus Christ. We may live in society, but we are never to forget who we serve. So the challenge that Jesus gives his followers is to get out there and tell others about me. Here's the problem. A lot of times, too many times, never in this church, okay? And a lot of times what we see is Christians often end up in what I'm going to call a holy huddle, all right? Now, a holy huddle is when Christians only want to socialize with other Christians, and that's it. And I, and I get it. It's natural to kind of want to congregate with like-minded people, but if you're only hanging out with other Christians, that's an issue. That's not going to work. See, a church like this is supposed to be like a hospital. And no matter who you are or what you've got going on in your life, you can come into these doors and you can find healing. You can get well. But far too frequently, Christians have turned the church into a country club. We kind of pay our dues, so to speak. Right? We want to be entertained. We want to socialize with other Christians. And we don't want to let anybody in who doesn't look like us. Or at the very least, we'll let them in, but we're going to make them feel like a second-class citizen while they're here. Now, during the planning stages of Downtown Harbor Church, we just passed our seven-year anniversary. So we're talking probably eight years ago at this point. Adam and I, we did a ton, a ton of research in the area speaking to people who didn't go to church because we knew that the statistics are that 87% of the tri-county area does not go to church. That's a lot of people. We knew that most of our friends didn't go to church. We knew that a lot of our family did not go to church. And so rather than guessing about why these folks are not going to church, we just straight up asked them. We said, can you tell us why don't you go to church? You're not going to offend us. So would you just please be honest? Why why don't you go? What we learned shocked us. Almost none. And when I say none, I mean almost none had a problem with Jesus. Almost all had a problem with Christians. The followers of Christ were keeping them from Christ. Talk about convicting. And so if we're trying to reach people with the message of Jesus who have no problem with Jesus, yet they have a problem with us, again, the big question is, what are Christians doing that Christ did not do? That's what this whole series is about. We're going to be taking an in-depth look into the life of Jesus as he teaches us how to live in the world how we engage with other people who desperately need to hear his message. What happens when we begin to follow his lead, not just believe what he says? So the first interaction that I want us to examine today is a famous one, the woman caught in adultery. We've looked at it before. We're going to look at it again. It's always great to rehearse truths. This time, I want us to look at it from a different angle. What I want us to do today is sort of peer over the shoulder of Jesus, so to speak, to see how he does what he does. The story begins in John chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 1. Early in the morning, he, and that's Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down, and he began to teach them. So right here, we see what we've been talking about. People like Jesus. They wanted to be around him. They wanted to be in his company. They wanted to see what he was up to and what he was teaching and what he was saying. So it's a beautiful morning. 
It's probably around 7.30 in the morning at this point. There's some nice fellowship going on. There's some nice teaching happening. When out of nowhere, the scribes and the Pharisees, these are the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, making her stand before all of them. Let's pause. What do we know about this woman so far? Not much. We can infer a couple of things. We know that she was caught in adultery, which means that either she or that guy, whoever he is, was married. Because if they were not married, the charge would be fornication. Additionally, we know that she was Jewish. Otherwise, these Jewish leaders wouldn't care about her, and they wouldn't care at all about what she's doing. So the Jewish leaders say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? Now, John, the one who is writing this gospel, gives us a little insight into their motives. And he tells us that they said this to test him. So they might have some charge to bring against him. So the first thing that becomes clear as we're looking at this interaction is that these religious leaders have zero desire to bring healing into this woman's life. They might be religious leaders, but they have no desire to bring restoration into her life or into her marriage. This is simply an awful scene of humiliation. Worse, she was nothing but a pawn. Bait to be used in their trap for Jesus. Which begs the question, what was their problem with Jesus? Now remember, they called him teacher, which is actually a term of respect for a rabbi. But this is just sarcasm. These men do not respect him at all. They don't believe that he had the right credentials, which is laughable. They had the right credentials to do what he was doing because he didn't learn from one of their pre-approved masters, if you will. They see him as sidestepping their man-made system. And let's not be naive. They were jealous. They were jealous that no matter where he went, people followed and wanted to be in his company. They were jealous that people liked him. And worst of all, Jesus set himself up as someone who teaches God's word. But in their eyes, they saw Jesus as being someone who was soft on sinners. They saw Jesus with their own eyes eating with sinners, drinking with tax collectors and prostitutes, and it drove them crazy. So they had to find a way to get rid of him, discredit him, maybe even get him arrested or possibly even killed. And they were going to use this adulterous woman to accomplish that end. So let me quickly show you the trap that they created for Jesus. Let's read it again. Teacher, they said, this woman was caught in adultery, uh, in the act of adultery. Here it is. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? So now they know Jesus, or they think they do, and they expect him to go soft on her. And so if he goes against the law of Moses, boom, they got him. I mean, if he goes against the law of Moses in the very temple, he will show himself to be unfit to be a rabbi. He will discredit himself in front of all of these people. However, if Jesus pulls a fast one, and all of a sudden he says, you know what? Law of Moses is right. She has to die. Then they really have it. Remember, at this point, Israel was under Roman occupation, and Rome reserved the sole right for capital punishment and so if he says this woman must die, they can have him arrested for being a rebel against Rome. This is really a perfect trap. You have to hand it to these folks. So for the purposes of this series, 
The question that I want us to answer based on this incident is, how does Jesus respond to, let's call it flagrant sin? Obvious sin. Sin that you can actually see in another person's life. I'm not talking about sort of hidden sin like jealousy or envy or maybe even anger. or what, you know. I'm talking about in-your-face sin. How does Jesus himself respond when he comes face-to-face with an adulterer, with a thief, with a criminal, with a gossip, with a slanderer? Sin that you just, you just can't ignore it because it's there. And for that matter, how does Jesus want his followers to respond to visible sin? To the people in our families or in our workplace or in our city with obvious sin, out in the open sin. Now, here's the thing. They might not know they're sinning, right? They might, they might not care that they're sinning. They might not think that what they're doing, is, you know, there's all, but whatever the case may be, what is our response supposed to look like as Christians getting involved in their life? So here's what I want you to do. Picture this. Hundreds of people around in this town. They're crowded around. This woman is on the ground. She's crying. She's scared. The Jewish leaders are seething with anger and all eyes are on Jesus. What is he going to do with her sin? It says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What say you, rabbi? And he gets down on his knees quietly and just begins to write. Now, for thousands of years, theologians have wondered what Jesus wrote on that ground, and no one really knows. But the consensus is, is that he was inviting those men and us to remember that God was the one who wrote the law with his own finger, the Ten Commandments. And he's trying to remind these men about the true nature of the law, the law that says that the entire world is guilty of sin before God. And with that image in their mind, it says that he straightened up and he said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone. And once again, he bent down and he wrote on the ground. I have to imagine in that moment that whatever Jesus wrote on that ground, and we will never know until we get to heaven, the effect was to cause each man there that day to remember his most embarrassing sin. To make them feel as though they were the ones standing half naked, exposed to this crowd just like that woman. Jesus' message was clear. You don't have the right to condemn. And folks, what we see happening right here is something that we're all guilty of. We, like these religious leaders, manufacture this non-existent, non-scriptural hierarchy of sin by which we judge other people. Like, listen, hey, I have some sin in my life, but you, you're really a sinner. We act as though there's some sort of sin point system that enables us to tell how sinful another person is. Like, for example, lying, that's negative two points. Not bad, right? Nothing crazy, like not a huge deal. Adultery, that's negative nine, okay? Big difference. Listen, I may have lied, but at least I didn't commit adultery. And then let's say you cheat on your taxes, all right? Plus two points. You get credit for that. Put that in the bank, all right? Now, <clears throat> we may laugh, 
But this is how these religious leaders were operating. And it's how we operate as well. We see someone else with a quote-unquote worse sin in their life, and we become self-righteous, and we condemn. But according to the Bible, there is no such thing as a worse sin. James, who is the brother of Jesus, says, for the person who keeps all of the laws, except one, is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. How about that? Get off your high horse, James is saying. So these Jewish leaders, they didn't know hit them. I mean, honestly, they thought they had trapped Jesus, and it has completely blown up in their faces. It says that when they heard it, what Jesus said about the stone, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. He straightened up, which means he's been kneeling this whole time. Jesus straightened up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. Get ready. Neither do I condemn you. That's mercy. That's grace. But he didn't stop there. He says, go on your way, and from now on, do not sin again. It is so vitally important that we do not miss this entire sentence. Because in this sentence, there is grace and there is truth. Jesus is said to be full of truth and grace. And a lot of times as Christians, we kind of do either one or the other. But Jesus never shied away from calling sin, sin. Not once. He never was afraid of calling a sinner, a sinner. But unlike those religious leaders, he didn't stop there. He died for those sinners. He didn't bring condemnation. He brought restoration. This is just an absolutely incredible encounter. So based on what we've just witnessed, how do we follow Jesus' lead? This is the question we're going to ask every single week halfway through the message. How do we follow Jesus' lead? As we peeked over his shoulder today, what do we learn? What does Jesus show us about engaging with people with what's going on in their life when it comes to sin? The first thing that he shows us is that there should be no condemnation of unbelievers. One of the most quoted verses in all the Bible, perhaps the most famous verse in all of Scripture, arguably one of the greatest lines ever written in literature is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We love this verse. The posters of this verse in Sunday schools all around America, okay? Athletes put John 3.16 on their cheek, but we tend to forget the very next verse, John 3.17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this right here is precisely why Jesus did not condemn that woman. For if he condemned her, he would have undermined the very purpose for which God sent him into this world. Now, this might sound like a shock to some of you. Because in your personal experience with Christianity, in your sort of personal experience with the local church, it would seem as though to you that Christians live to condemn. Love it. Boycotts. Pickets. Signs of hate, right? It would seem as though a prerequisite to becoming a Christian would be the ability to point out sin in other people's lives. 
and especially condemning the lives of non-believers. Let's talk about them for a second. Paul raises a very interesting question when it comes to non-believers. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? This is so key for us as Christians. As we engage with non-Christians in our attempt to follow Jesus' lead, to show them the gospel. Because criticizing them and judging them and condemning non-believers for their lifestyle, for their sin, and for their mistakes completely under us undermines the very purpose and the nature of the gospel. You gotta remember, you can't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. And yet we do. All the time. Now, in their defense, they have not signed up for our system of morality yet. They have not signed up to be a follower of Jesus. They do not have the Holy Spirit inside of them, helping them, guiding them, convicting them. So why would they act like a Christian? And while we're at it, let's be honest, Christians barely act like Christians. Which is exactly why in this scenario, Jesus shows us the importance of seeing our own sin. Instead of coming out swinging, condemning others for their sin, Jesus challenges us to always consider the sin in our own lives first. He did this today when he said he was without sin, cast the first stone, and he's done in the past. Particularly when he said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take that uh, speck out of your eye, and all the time, there's a plank in your own. You hypocrite. Oof. You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Did you ever stop to think about what he's saying here? Jesus is saying that when you're out there living in the world, you're going to come in contact with people who have sin in their lives. Maybe it's an adult child of yours, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a sibling, before you come down on that person like a ton of bricks, potentially pushing them away forever. Remember, you got sin too. When we do this, when we kind of take this sort of self-reflecting pause, it creates in us a posture of humility rather than an attitude of moral superiority. When we recognize our own sinful reality, then and only then, according to Jesus, will we have the ability to see clearly, which will then enable us to help others who are struggling with sin in their lives. Today, Jesus is teaching us how to have grace-filled conversations with people who desperately need to hear his truth. Never forget, as Christians, our goal is to introduce others to Jesus. This is our goal. This is our command. We are, we are called to lead people to Jesus, not in the way those Jewish leaders led that woman to Christ. Kicking, screaming, feeling condemned and judged, frightened. Rather, we're to introduce people to Jesus by the gracious beauty, if you will, of our lives. We're to treat everybody regardless of their sin, with love and mercy because that is how God treated us in spite of our sin. Which, by the way, was just as clear to him as the sin of that woman. 
as I have loved you, Jesus says, as I have loved you, love one another. So, what's practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week, we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So this series is one big practical. It is going to be one big guide showing us how to live in the world and to reach people for Christ. And so with that in mind today, I just want to give you a prompt, just something to be thinking about, gnawing on this week. And it comes from the question that Paul asked himself when it comes to unbelievers. And he said, what business is it of mine? This week, I would just challenge you to, to become aware, mindful, shall we say, of how often you might publicly or privately hold others, specifically non-Christians, to your system of morality. How does your behavior and attitude towards that person affect that relationship that you're in with them? How does your attitude and behavior affect that person? What if we followed Jesus' advice of recognizing the sin in our own life? How would that change those relationships? How would that impact those relationships? How might healing occur for some of the bridges you might have burned in the past? Remember, our goal as Christians is always restoration. Never condemnation. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you've preserved this amazing account for us to learn from. It is so challenging, Lord, for those of us who are Christians because there's just, there's just a, a human nature to judge people. God, I pray that today by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would convict us that you would soften our hearts, that you would challenge us to live with love and grace and mercy and truth as we interact with the people that you've placed on our path. And Lord, if there is someone here today or watching online or listening in the future who has been hurt by a church, or someone coming in your name, I pray, Lord, that you would touch their hearts. That you would bring healing, Lord. And God, that you would challenge them to forgive us because we are just humans. And I pray that in spite of what we may have done to them or said to them, that they would know your son, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. Lord, we need you. We pray all of this in your name.